Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver, where summer has finally arrived after a very wet May here on the Front Range. We got more than three and a half inches in Denver. Of course, it is a completely different story on the other side of the Rockies, where we are looking at a severe drought heading into fire season over on the west slope of the state. That is just one of the things that we're going to talk about with our guest today. It's Dan Gibbs. He's the executive director of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. Now, Dan may not be a household name outside of the state, but his portfolio covers everything from forests to wildlife to oil and gas. So we have got a whole lot to cover with him. But first, let's do the news. President Biden's nominee to head up the Bureau of Land Management just had her confirmation hearing in the Senate. Tracy Stone Manning is a longtime friend of the podcast here. She was a guest in our live episode from Missoula, Montana back in 2019. We've got a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to hear more from Tracy here. Her hearing on Tuesday went about as expected. She emphasized her years of experience building consensus and working with various stakeholders to solve thorny lands issues. Senator John Barrasso, the ranking Republican on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, came out swinging even before Stone Manning had a chance to answer a single question. He said that she wasn't committed to upholding the Bureau's multiple-use mandate. Well, Senator John Tester, who was there to introduce Stone Manning, took issue with that. Stone Manning worked for Tester earlier in her career, and so the senator veered off of his prepared remarks to address Barrasso directly. The points that you brought up that talks about uh, appropriate use did not describe the person that I just talked about. This person listens, she works, she does the right thing. There was a bill that came up last year about putting a gold mine on the border of Yellowstone National Park. I opposed it. I think anybody with common sense would oppose it. The headwaters and the border of Yellowstone National Park. If that's what we're talking about, then that's the kind of person we need in the BLM. There are places we can mine, there are places we can drill, there are places appropriate for resource extraction, there are other places that are not. <coughs> I think Tracy Stowe Manning brings that understanding to the table. And she is somebody that believes in multiple use, and appropriate use. And I will tell you this, I would not be here today introducing her if I thought she was the person that you described, Senator Brasso. Now, the timing on Stone Manning's nomination is a little unclear. We should see a vote in committee in the next week or so, but we don't know when the full Senate is likely to give her a final confirmation vote. The timing is worth watching, though, because of two things. Number one, we are expecting a report from the Interior Department at some point in the next few weeks on the pause on oil and gas leasing that the agency put in place to review the entire oil and gas leasing program. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Secondly, once she is confirmed, Tracy Stone Manning is going to take over an agency with effectively no headquarters. Remember, former Secretary David Bernhardt and William Perry Pendley, the acting head of BLM who never actually got the job, they successfully eviscerated the top of the bureau by quote-unquote relocating BLM headquarters to Grand Junction, Colorado. Now, I've gone on the record many times saying that all of this was just a bald-faced attempt to simply break the agency, and now we have confirmation that it worked. 
BLM has been squirrely up until now about releasing actual numbers about how many people moved to Grand Junction when their jobs moved. The agency was talking about how there were 41 positions in Grand Junction, but keep in mind that a position is not an actual human being in a job. Well, the agency finally came clean to Chase Woodruff with Colorado Newsline. He'd been out in Grand Junction. He didn't see anyone going in or out of BLM headquarters. And so a BLM spokesperson finally admitted that a grand total of three employees actually moved from D.C. to Grand Junction. Three. So that is what Tracy Stone Manning will be walking into, assuming she's confirmed by the Senate. She's inheriting an agency with very little functioning leadership and no functioning headquarters that oversees one-tenth of the land in this country. That is a huge job. And rebuilding the Bureau of Land Management from the damage of the Trump years is going to take quite some time. Our guest today heads up the Colorado Department of Natural Resources, which is to say he is at the middle of some of the biggest challenges the state is facing today. Maybe the biggest ones, arguably, now that COVID cases are finally trending downward. Dan Gibbs is uniquely qualified for his job. He has been a county commissioner. He was a state representative and a state senator. And perhaps most notably, he is a red card certified wildland firefighter, which means he can be on call to fight fires, even as he heads up the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. Uh, Dan is in charge of state parks, water, wildlife, forestry, oil and gas, mining, state trust lands. It is a very large portfolio, uh, although oddly enough, he is not in charge of actually fighting the wildfires, and we will talk about that in a minute. But first, Dan Gibbs, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So you're saying I can't keep a job, right? <laughs> <laughs> Many titles. So I just ran down that laundry list of stuff you oversee. How do you make sure all of those areas work together? I can imagine scenarios where, say, oil and gas oversight runs into conflict with wildlife protection. Well, first of all, it's, I mean, for me, having clear expectations from what my boss wants, and I'm, you know, serving the cabinet for the governor. And so that helps set the tone in terms of what performance metrics, what goals he has for me, for the organization, and then taking a hard look at who I have for staff, making sure I have the right firepower, make sure I have the right people that can deliver on what those goals are. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, balancing involved to say the least, um, but really exciting. You know, when you look at, at Colorado, I think most people think about, you know, the amazing natural resources and we have a a big challenge in front of us um, for the Department of Natural Resources and the state of Colorado. You know, you look at the growing population, you look at the, the drought challenges, the, the the water challenges that we have. So um, it's a real pleasure to serve in the role I'm in right now. And um, I have a great team of folks that have my back every step of the way. I want to ask about your experience fighting the Cameron Peak fire last fall. 2020 was far and away the worst fire season in Colorado history, certainly in terms of acres burned. You actually deployed to that fire as a volunteer firefighter. What was that like on the fire lines and what lessons did you take away from it for your day job? Yeah, I was I was deployed on on two fires last season, the Grizzly Creek, which was kind of the Glenwood uh, Canyon area, and then yeah, the Cameron um, Cameron Peak fire as well. 
the yeah, I've been a certified wildland firefighter. I want to say since about 2006, and and every year I I get out and fight fires. I've been deployed to you know fires in California and throughout the West. And I have to tell you, the Cameron Peak fire was was the most um, challenging fire experience I've ever been on, uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, um, depending on you know the the temperature, the wind, the topography. Um, the amount of structures you have in a particular area all have an impact on what the fire behavior will look like. With the Cameron Peak fire, yeah, it was it was um, you know late in the fall, so things get really crispy. So it's extremely dry. So you had like um, energy release components um, um, that were in the higher higher 90th percentile. So it means it's really really crispy to say the least. You had winds that were ripping through areas, really challenging environments. And um, I was placed on a initial attack team um, that the Rappo Roosevelt Forest helped put together. And um, that team was kind of assembled with people um, like the, that would normally work on the Rappo Roosevelt hotshot team. Um, there were some other folks that were kind of assembled. And um, yeah, I mean, we worked really hard to, to obviously protect human life, property, critical infrastructure. But, you know, when I think about the Department of Natural Resources and, and when, I, when I'm on fires, you know, I think about what are the impacts to watersheds? What are those impacts um, to wildlife? Um, what are the, you know, what is like after the fires too? Like the impacts on watersheds is, is real. It is, it is, you know, multi-million dollar challenges that the face has still right now dealing with the aftermath of, of fires. Um, and so it gives me a good perspective of what I need to focus on. Um, climate change is also real. You know, um, I've, I fought fires in January in Boulder County, uh, the old stage fire. Who would ever think that you'd be fighting fires in January? Um, most people never, you know, but that's the reality that we have in front of us right now where there's no more fire season. It's all year round and it creates a, a real challenge, um, for the folks and men and women that are out there trying to, to fight fires. So then let's talk about this year. Uh, we have a, a very odd situation where the Western part of the state is in an extreme drought. And then the Eastern part of the state caught back up to normal. And we had an incredibly wet January here in the front range, uh, which is obviously then creating more fuel as stuff grows back. Are you worried? Number one, that this year could be even worse. And how, as the person in charge of managing the resources, the forests, the preparation work, uh, how how do you prepare this year for what what we could see given the given the very unique uh, circumstances right now? Well, first of all, I think you have to prepare for the worst, and the worst is fire season all year round. And um, even though on the Front Range and and it's really called the the, the South Platte Basin, um, that's actually they've had you know, really a decent amount of snowpack all season long, so they're they're above 100 percent of average still right now. But then you look at um, you know the San Miguel Basin, uh, the Yampa Basin, um, Gunnison Basin; those are all in the Rio Grande, all really uh, in a challenging spot right now. But what's likely going to, to occur if I had a magic wand is that early season, which is like about now, you're going to have some fires in the southwest part um, pick up. 
and then on this on this um, South Platte area where you've had some decent moisture and the grasses, they call them the fine fuels, the one-hour fuels. Um, those are going to just uh, pl- proliferate. And then, you know, if we don't have a continuous kind of afternoon thunder showers that we normally have in Colorado, keep our fingers crossed that we have, you know, some good moisture in the afternoons. Um, as things dry up in the fall, uh, watch out on the front range um, because you're going to have these grasses that are just going to be huge. And it only takes, you know, um, it, believe it or not, it takes about a week of like pretty warm temperatures, upper 90s that we could easily have in, in, in the front range area to dry things out to create this energy release component that's in the 90s that just makes things crispy like you wouldn't believe that all it takes is one unattended campfire or just, you know, a spark arrester that um, someone's on an ATV or something like that to create a um, a spark that could just really create, you know, either grass fire that could just get out of hand really quickly or or wildfire. You know, the, the Grizzly Creek was mo- most likely caused by um, a spark arrester from, from a, a vehicle. I want to ask about forest management. How do you approach fuel loads? Uh, how do you approach wildfire management, given that Part of the reason we are in this situation now is a century of uh, fire suppression. Anytime any small fire broke out and that leads to these conditions where you now for the first time ever have 200,000 acres burning, can we burn our way out of this safely given the conditions? No, we can't. Um, You know, given the fact that one in two Coloradans, believe it or not, live within the wildland urban interface right now. So prescribed fire, in my opinion, is a really important management tool, um, but it can't be done everywhere. And it has to be at the right scale and pace that, number one, there's local buy-in. Um, you're not going to do prescribed fire if, if folks in a local community have you know big-time concerns over potential smoke in the air. Um, you also have to make sure you look at the right landscape. Um, the map in, in back of you is actually an awesome map to look at because when we look at whether it's like prescribed fire or forest health issues, it can't be done in a vacuum. It really needs to be done looking at landscape scale and collaboration. So whether this land is forest service land that ties into Bureau of Land Management land, into county open space land, onto tribal lands, onto private lands, um, we all need to work on a strategy to figure out those best lands, those most critical lands to treat first. And that's why we are actually working on um, implementing what, what's called our Shared Stewardship uh, Memorandum of Understanding that the state has with the U.S. Forest Service. And I'd personally love to see this agreement, too, apply to um, Bureau of Land Management lands, too, because we just need to look at the state of Colorado as a whole and, again, you know, focus on the most critical locations, I think. And, and normally those locations are close to where people live. And then um, also we need to take a close look at protecting watersheds too. I mean, there's nothing more important really. We hear about fuel reduction as a broad term, but dive a little bit into what that means. Is that logging? Is that getting rid of the grasses? Is it big trees, little trees? I mean, how? What exactly does that look like on the ground, recognizing that it's probably a little bit different everywhere you go? Yeah. Well, it, it could mean, for example – um, taking away some of the fuel load, even even just like the little needles of pine trees that you have just out, outside your front door of your house. So we call that zone one, when it's like really from your house out to about 15 feet, trying to remove, like sometimes people have like, you know, uh, campfire wood, you know, stored on their outside deck. 
that's a really bad place to store your wood, by the way, <laughs> keep, keep that farther away. So, um, so, but, but, you know, forest management is, is everything from, you know, prescribed fire. Um, we, we, we don't see too many broadcast burns now, and those are kind of larger multiple acre, uh, landscape scale burns, but we see more, um, pile burns. So I live in Summit County, literally like outside my, my door, I can look at the mountainside and we have thousands of small piles that need to be burned. And that's an important management strategy. The, 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 it's, the slope is more than 30% grade. So you can't get, you know, mechanical equipment in there to remove it. So you're going to have to, you know, burn it uh, eventually. Um, it, it could be um, do selective tri uh, tr trimming around um, uh, the landscape. It could be um, larger fire breaks. It could be clear cuts depending on the location. Um, and so, yeah, it's a combination of cutting down trees and areas, removing, uh, debris and slash and, and utilizing fire when, when need be. I want to move from fire into water. Uh, DNR has responsibilities both for water conservation and watershed management. What, what are the differences between the two? Well, um, you know, conservation is really, you know, part, part of our um, Colorado water plan is to really look at um, having additional storage, but also to conserve, you know, at least about 400,000 acre feet a year. So that's using water wisely. You know, that's really looking, um, working with the larger water providers, um, informing them on, you know, the, the historic drought that we're on and really encouraging them to take, you know, proactive steps on, um, on, on what, you know, on what they can tell their users on when they can water their lawns or when they can't. You know, I personally think as, as a former Summit County Commissioner um, who's worked in local government, um, the local land use decisions play a really important role when it comes to water conservation because they help set a lot of the policies. I think a lot of folks think it's like a statewide, like you have to go, um, you know, low flow toilets and all the, um, you know, other uh, kind of utility frame of, of um, conservation methods. But, you know, where we allow building is, is just so important. Um, and, and whether or not, you know, people are using city water or well water and so forth. So they play a really important role. And, and Water Conservation Board is kind of that lead entity that sets that water policy framework uh, for the state. What is the rough breakdown in terms of residential, industrial, agricultural use in Colorado? Where, where does most of the water go? Well, a, a big percentage is agriculture. Um, and... And that's something where, you know, when you look at Colorado water law, it, it's really, you know, first in time, first in line um, with the prior appropriation system. And you, you look at the agriculture community and they're the ones that, you know, have those senior water rights. And so in, in many cases, it's it's private, you know, long time, you know, ranchers and farmers, but also um, we're seeing more and more, um, you know, water utilities, you know, look to buy up, you know, farmers and ranches to gain their, their water portfolios, but also look at, you know, expanding capacity of certain reservoirs around the state too. You know, we, um, we haven't had any, you know, more recent, like large scale, um, you know, uh, West Slope front range water diversions, but, um, you know, the governor and myself feel very strongly that, that there really needs to be local buy-in um, of future, you know, water diversion projects in the future that, that um, 
you really have to treat that very uh, carefully and and make sure that there's like really local support. Um, there's a lot of talk of future diversions in the San Luis Valley, and we know that would have have really devastating impacts on on that region of the state. So, um, so really taking a close look at what the local needs are and the um, the basin roundtables that we have, the structure of that around the state is really important because those local ideas kind of bubble up to the water plan. And that's where, you know, that's where we're able to implement, you know, water policy in the state. So we're, we're five years into the Colorado water mm-hmm. plan. Uh, do you think it's been a success? Are there changes that you think are going to be necessary, especially looking at, say, further downriver where Lake Mead and, and Lake Powell are at, at scary low levels already? Yeah. I think I think overall the water plan has been a success in part to get the right people around the table to start talking about the water needs and you know a big part of that plan is you know I would say the basin roundtables and and having them really work to to develop what their basin implementation strategies are um, so I think that's really important. And, you know, 2015 was not all too long ago, but believe it or not, they didn't con- contemplate climate change back then. Wow. And so now we're really looking through a lens of, of how climate change impacts um, water availability and scenarios. 2015, they also really didn't contemplate population increases as well. So we're taking a hard look at, you know, what population increases, you know, mean to the state of Colorado as well. So we're seeing like, you know, about 70,000 new people moving to the state a year. That has huge impacts, of course, on on the water delivery systems. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, how we can update the water plan. Um, we're also looking through, we just created a water equity task force as well to make sure we look at a statewide lens of, of water equity to make sure everyone has accessible, you know, water quality and quantity. It doesn't matter if you live in the Denver area or the San Luis Valley or, you know, at the Ute Mountain Ute Tribal Park. Um, like everyone deserves, you know, good clean water. And and that's a good foundational part of, of what we're looking at right now too. Are there particular areas in Colorado that are of concern when it comes to water quality and equity? Yeah, the the Arkansas River Basin, and and we've we've worked really hard um, on 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 really looking through a lens of how we can um, improve the delivery system. There's what's called the Arkansas Valley Conduit Project that's actually been in the works. I'm looking at my communications guy Chris Aaron since I want to say 19 late 1960s. Uh, you know, under under the uh, JFK administration, actually. So. So it's something that Colorado has been concerned with for many, many years. But, you know, water projects are, are expensive, you know, and the water plan originally um, highlighted the fact that we need, um, you know, millions and millions, $100 million a year, you know, perpetually just to deal with the challenges that we have in front of us. And, you know, frankly, when, when the water plan was developed in 2015, I, I don't think a whole lot of effort was really put into, you know, is it really a hundred million dollars? Like, like, tell me more, you know? And so we are working really hard to figure out what that new dollar amount is. Um, you know, we're, we're optimistic. There could be some, some federal funds, you know, heading Colorado's way that we can, you know, maybe use for some of these larger scale, you know, water projects. Whenever you talk about water in the West, you inevitably end up in a point of the conversation where someone brings up the prospect of a call on water or a call on the river. 
and it it's talked in kind of hushed tones of this is this is the worst case scenario, but it feels like we are inevitably heading there. First off, what is a call on water or a call on the river, and and why does that uh, seem to instill fear in in these conversations? <laughs> well, the analogy I like to use, you know, uh, when COVID first hit. The, the state was in a very challenging economic situation. Um, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. There was there was an effort to 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 really look at the state funds and to look at the revenues coming in. And actually, for the first time in Colorado history, the governor imposed what's called a, a financial sequestration order, meaning there's not enough money coming in to pay the bills. And so in the water world, you know, a call is really, you know, you look at how the water is appropriated, well, um, there's not enough water heading through these channels um, to make sure that, you know, everyone's entitled to that percentage that they're normally entitled to. And as a result of this, you have to, you have to place a call on the river that says, okay, you know, prior appropriation, we're going to start, you know, the person that owns the, 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 the longest uh, water right and the most, you know, senior water right is going to be entitled first. And then there's the pecking order to the most junior. And so, um, you know, we have seen that happen um, in, in Colorado over the last few years on certain rivers. So that's not abnormal. Um, what is abnormal is, you know, the, the climate that we're experiencing, too, is very similar to what, you know, even warmer temperatures in the 1930s Dust Bowl, believe it or not, which is frightening, absolutely frightening, to say the least. You know, I live in Summit County, really close to 10,000 feet elevation. Um, pretty amazing, you know, Breckenridge just, just closed their, their ski resort just a couple of weeks ago. Um, but you know, we're seeing challenges, you know, with snowpack, we're seeing challenges with, um, with our temperatures. Um, and we really need a plan for the worst for Colorado. So our, we have a, we have a tremendous team of folks. I have, I have about with, within division water resources and water conservation board. And I have water folks that work within Colorado parks and wildlife. I have about 325 people that their full-time job is to focus on water. Do you feel like we are in a, a a position where things are in control enough heading down this scary path, or are you worried we're in a, a situation where something's got to give if this if this is a ten year dust bowl type scenario? I I um I I, I think if I had a magic wand, I would really you know, work with local governments to figure out local land use decisions to really make sure we're approving areas where people live in areas that have adequate water resources. I think I would work with water providers to really um, uh, encourage less watering, frankly, just to have like more zero scaping of, of, of land, just like you see in Arizona, areas that are uh, much warmer temperatures. Um, you know, my, my water folks are thinking about water all day long, which, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, but again, just like kind of the water world, excuse me, the fire world, um, you know, we, we do need a plan for the worst and we are planning um, for the worst right now. I want to move on to oil and gas mm -hmm. development. How do you balance the desire of the oil and gas industry to keep drilling and keep doing what they've, they've been doing for the last 50, 100 years? With both the growing outdoor economy, uh, which we frequently see in, in conflict with oil and gas development, and of course, with climate change, as it's affecting water and wildfire and everything else we've been talking about here. 
How do you do that? You you work with a really wonderful governor like my boss, Jared Polis. You have a legislature that gets supportive behind a, a really a bill that um, really changed how we look at oil and gas in the state of Colorado. So we had Senate Bill 181 pass um, about a year and a half ago. And that did a variety of different things. Um, number one, just looking at the mission statement, you know, we used to say, you know, the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission shall, you know, foster the development of oil and gas activities in the state of Colorado. So we changed that from foster to administer oil and gas in the state of Colorado um, while, um, while being protective of public health, safety, welfare, the environment, and, um, and wildlife resources. I mean, number one, I mean, that's a paradigm shift in terms of how we look through a lens of oil and gas in the state of Colorado. And and not only that mission statement, but we also really took a hard look at, um, you know, um, how flow lines are set up, um, took a hard look at um, looking at the, the right spacing of oil and gas activity as it relates to a school or a house. You know, um, I used to be a, a state legislator, and back when I was um, a state rep, um, the oil and gas rigs, um, the distance between an oil and gas rig and your house used to be 150 feet. You, you know why it was 150 feet? I, I do not. Because pretend my, my pencil is the rig and this cup is your house. It was within the, the potential length, length of, of this of falling down on a school wow. or a house. And so now we're really looking through a lens of what's, you know, what, what's the proper setback, what, what that should look like. And, and we actually have um, uh, right now 2,000 feet, but that's not a hard 2,000 feet. If, if you're a farmer and rancher that leases to an oil and gas operator and, um, and, and, and you want to have it uh, a closer distance, you work out an agreement with oil and gas, you can have it closer. But, um, but I mean, come on. I mean, we've come a long way since right. 150 feet um, as a father with two young kids, um, you know, making sure the proper distances are in place. So, so it's a challenge, honestly, you know, balancing oil and gas with, you know, protecting, um, um, uh, you know, uh, human life, pr property, um, and, you know, environmental resources. Um, we also have a component in there that also allows local governments to be a part of the siting process too. So local governments can decide too, you know, hey, you know, instead of having this particular location, oil and gas, or this area, have you considered this other location, this other location C? Local governments now have the authority to do that, which I think is really exciting because every local government, you know, there's 64 different counties and 64 counties, um, every county has a little bit different lens in terms of, you know, where they envision oil and gas to occur. Do you think there are lessons to be learned or exported from Colorado to other states, especially New Mexico and Wyoming, as they're facing a, a pretty serious financial reckoning is for those states as the as the oil and gas industry transitions are there mm -hmm. are there things that Colorado does that you think would be helpful either at the national or for other states yeah I mean and I've been in touch with my counterparts from a lot of the surrounding states uh, including California and how we navigate um, oil and gas activity and and again every state is is so different um, when you look at where um, for example federal lands in Colorado um, for um, crude oil, you know, we're only about three to 4% are on a Bureau of Land Management lands where 
Uh, New Mexico, for example, it's it's more than 50%. Um, and, and so it's, it's a little bit different situation in every state. I do think that Senate Bill 181 is, is groundbreaking. It's really unique in terms of making sure we do things the right way. And I think I, w- I would call it the Colorado way, frankly, you know, um, oil and gas operators, you know, it can work with local governments. They can, um, you know, if they work with a private landowner, then again, you know, does want to have oil and gas, uh, an agreement to have that closer to where they live. They can actually, um, you know, agree to that. Um, if you're someone that doesn't want to see, you know, oil and gas activity right at their doorstep, then 2,000 feet, you know, is a, is a good rule for, for folks. Um, so it really, it, it's a good tailored approach to, to really understand and work with local governments. We're seeing across Colorado and across the West, parks, trails, campgrounds filling up early. Colorado parks moved to reservations only for campgrounds this year. National parks, we're seeing reservation systems. Um, I, just this this past weekend in, in Utah, I saw that it was a four-hour wait in Zion to climb Angel's Landing. Um, do we need more trails and campgrounds, first of all? And and how do we get there? Yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely seeing an explosion of people, you know, get outdoors. And, and I think part of that, too, we're, we're seeing about 70,000 new people moving to Colorado a year. And Colorado, we're, we're so lucky to have just the amazing, amazing natural resources where it's, you know, um, like over the weekend, you know, it rained a bit in, in Denver and everyone's like, oh my goodness, like, am I ever going to see the sun again? <laughs> well, you know, we have awesome weather. We have over, you know, 300 days of sunshine, over 300 um, you know, uh, inches of, of uh, snowpack normally in your favorite ski resort. Um, we have world-class fishing, hunting, whitewater rafting, like you name it. And, um, and I think that part of the reality, and, and I, I don't even call it the COVID bump anymore because we did see about 14 million visitors last year and about 19 million this year at our state parks. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's all about sustainability. It's really looking at, you know, expanding in certain areas for, for capacity. Um, you know, I'm the head of the DNR and it's challenging for me to find, you know, a camping spot mm-hmm. too. And I, I, I know places too, and I know people, <laughs> um, but we also really want to look at expanding um, our state park system, just looking at the state of Colorado map and back you in areas where um, it's almost like the road less traveled, you know, um, Trinidad, for example, you know, our newest state park system, we, we had this amazing partnership with Trust for Public Land, the Nature Conservancy, Great Outdoors Colorado, uh, Los Animas County, City of Trinidad, Parks and Wildlife, the DNR, all working together to create our, our, our new state park. You know, they purchase uh, uh, just under 20,000 acres of this amazing ranch land that now we're working on the process to figure out where is it best to put a trail here? Where is it best for camp? We're working with the tribes to make sure that we understand sensitive areas too that could have been used for um, um, burial grounds or just, you know, understand the historical significance. But how do we replicate that in other parts of the state, especially in some of those areas that people want to see more diversification? They, they know that outdoor recreation could be um, the next big thing. It could be the next gold rush, if you will. And I would say, you know, having new state parks is almost like the gift that keeps on giving. It's not like extractive industries that, you know, you, you drill, you drill, it's gone, and then you leave a big impact in environmental challenges after. But it's something that if you really take care of the environment, it's something that people will come back and they'll enjoy. They'll think about Trinidad in a different way to be like, hey, 
that state park is pretty sweet. And by the way, I can also go to Trinidad Lake State Park too to go boating, you know, right there. But we really want to look at, you know, diversifying our park system and, but also recognize um, that more and more people are coming. We need to educate folks on proper leave no trace ethic. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big challenge in front of us, honestly, but exciting work. And that raises the question always of how do you pay for it? And I know we're in, in the middle of the legislative session right now, you know, racing to an end. So I appreciate you taking the time today in the middle of all that. But I want to ask about this proposed Keep Colorado Wild Pass and how that would change how parks are funded. Yeah. Well, right now, first of all, um, when you buy a, a seasonal a parks pass, um, if you have one particular vehicle, um, it's an eighty dollar pass. And if you have a if you have a couple vehicles, you want to do a transferable pass. Um, it's one hundred and twenty dollars. What we're proposing in this particular, um, it's a bill that's going through the legislative process right now called Keep Colorado Wild. Um, your your park pass is going to be tied to the point of sale for your vehicle registration. And so other states have a very similar model. For example, um, um, Montana, um, Idaho, uh, state of Michigan, where you're automatically enrolled in this new state parks pass unless you let if unless you let the um, Department of Motor Vehicle know that you're not interested in a pass, you can opt out. And so the idea is that we're going to offer this this huge discount. It's going to be at least 50% off. I mean, we hope to get down to like maybe $20, uh, which would be really amazing. And really look through a lens of what are the, the barriers right now for people to, to visit a state park? It could be financially, potentially. It could be a transportation issue. Um, but let's, let's pretend we can wipe out those barriers and let's make it as cheap as possible. And let's try to offer this at at, an amazing discounted rate and, and get people outdoors. Um, I'm, I'm someone personally, you know, um, that I grew up, you know, uh, outdoors whenever, whenever I could get, and, and it was a game changer for me. You know, when I, uh, graduated from high school and I I ended up, uh, going to, to, uh, Colorado mountain college originally, and then Western state and Gunnison. But, um, the, the outdoors was such a, a way for me to like regenerate my soul, um, that I thought for sure I was going to make a living, you know, um, in the outdoors, either as an outdoor adventure guide or doing search and rescue up in Denali. And it can be very therapeutic. And, and I talked to folks, you know, especially during this challenging COVID time, which for the listeners, I hope, hope you are all okay. Um, but um, but having our state park system, having that open during that whole time when other states closed down was a game changer for, for people's um, wellness, for their mental health, for their physical health, and um, very important to say the least. Looking at the national scale here, the Biden administration is pushing its America the Beautiful initiative, which we've talked a lot about on the podcast before, the, the big point would be to protect 30% of America's land and water by the end of the decade. And the vision involves ground up conservation efforts. So do you see Colorado fitting into that vision? Uh, Do you see DNR being able to to lead that in a way that could be a model for the, the West or the rest of the country in terms of identifying these future lands for parks and conservation and working lands and conservation easements? Is there a, is there a role for for you and DNR to play there? Yeah, most definitely. Great question. I I think we will be a national leader on this. Um, 
we were doing some really unique, innovative things. Um, for example, um, we have what's called our outdoor regional partnerships. And so we are working, um, we're actually, there's an RFP out right now, but we, part of one of my performance metrics is to create three outdoor regional partnerships in Colorado. An example of, I would say, kind of an existing uh, outdoor regional partnership right now would be like the NOCO Places uh, Collaborative that's in place. And that's really kind of Larimer County, Jefferson County, Boulder County, um, Gilpin and Clear Creek, where folks have come together to really look at what lands are, are most important to, to protect, what lands are, are most appropriate for trails to put in, what lands do we need to make sure where we're looking at wildlife corridors that... Uh, we need to make sure there's proper overpasses and underpasses for wildlife, but really look through the lens of um, what those communities' needs are. And I think that's that's very unique. Um, when you look at outdoor recreation and conservation, time, sometimes can really come to a conclu- uh, collision at times. And and this really helps put kind of the framework of, you know, some great collaboration. The 30 by 30 is not something that, um, as you can imagine, the state can just wave its magic wand to say, hey, um, we're going to do it this way. Any more it, than the President Biden can. No, exactly. But it's really... Um, I think it's absolutely wonderful personally. And, but, but I almost look at it similar to our like uh, base and round tables where you, you work, you know, at a regional level to figure out what those needs are. Um, and you have locals kind of determine certain landscapes that bubble up to the state, and then we can bubble that to the feds, but it's not a top down approach. It's really, you know, working with, you know, landowners play such a critical role and, you know, the state actually owns very few acres when you think about it, when you look at this landscape up here. Um, but we do play a really important role in being a convener to really looking at, you know, how, how creating new state parks plays a role in this, how, how protecting our water resources helps play a role in this. Um, and so, yeah, we're, the state of Colorado, we're really, really excited to be, um, you know, part of these discussions and we're really um, working with this kind of, you know, 30 by 30 landscape. And, and we're working with our um, agency partners too, Department of Agriculture, um, uh, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, you know, also plays an important role, Colorado Department of Transportation. Um, and so the state, you know, is just, just one fraction of the piece of the pie. I know I've kept you over time here. So I, I want to ask a question that's going to have would could have a very long answer and ask you to answer it very briefly in two words yeah yeah, but it's wolves (laughs) okay uh where we've seen idaho this year the legislature moving to uh to kill off 90 percent of the wolves on the other hand you've got colorado voters instructing the state to reintroduce wolves here uh how is Mm. that process going and obviously the wolves are showing up already uh, even without the reintroduction uh but what's that what's that looking like and what's the time frame Great question. Um, so for a refresher, it was Proposition 114 that passed uh, by Colorado voters. It, redirected, it directed Parks and Wildlife to do four major things, and we are doing this. So it's to develop a plan, restore, manage gray wolves in Colorado, hold statewide hearings to assist with developing this plan, take the necessary steps to reintroduce wolves that lie west of the Continental Divide no later than December 31st, 2023, and then deal with the the livestock wolf kind of challenge on 
um, assist livestock in preventing and resolving conflicts of gray wolves, but also figure out a funding strategy to recoup the costs if, if a wolf does, you know, take down, you know, livestock. So we're, so those are the big four that Parks and Wildlife is working on. Um, by the time this podcast goes, I'm optimistic that we'll send out a press release, letting people know who will be on both the technical work group as well as the, the larger statewide advisory group. And, and they will help inform the wildlife commissioners. They'll help inform Parks and Wildlife on the process that we're undertaking with, with implementing Proposition 114. So, so you heard it first. You know, we're going to have wolves on the ground no later than December 31st, 2023. Last question. Uh, since you now get to see the whole state as part of your job, you have seen a whole lot of it in your your previous roles as a county commissioner, as a firefighter. Uh, what is your favorite off the beaten path outdoor spot in Colorado? Oh man, I'd have to kill you if I told I know, you. <laughs> just, just you, me, and, and the listeners of this podcast. You know, no one else has to know. You know, I, I absolutely love getting up to Jackson County and, and a lot of folks, like when I say that, folks are like, where? You know, but the the big city there is is Walden. It's it's known to be the the least populated uh, county in in uh, in Colorado. I, I lived as a kid in Gunnison, so for me, there's nothing like uh, floating down the the Gunnison River, fly fishing. Um, I have a great uh, kind of backcountry ski area I absolutely love called Mill Creek. It's kind of in between Gunnison and Crested Butte, and um, so those are really special areas to me. Nice. All right, Dan Gibbs, Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that will do it for this episode of The Landscape. If you liked what you heard here, hey, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is always the best way for new listeners to find us and what we're doing here. One quick announcement, we are getting ready to tell a series of stories about landscapes in need of protection, showing the way forward to protecting 30% of America's land and water by 2030. If you work on those landscapes, if you want to suggest one for us to cover, drop us an email, podcast at westernpriorities.org. And of course, we will keep an eye out for that report on the oil and gas leasing system. Whenever that arrives from the Interior Department, we will break down what it all means. My name is Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thank you, Dan Gibbs, for joining us, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.